Greetings, listeners, and from the rock, and from the far out stables of rock and roll heaven. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my esteemed, far out, fantastic, fantabulous co-host, Chandler Williams. Thanks for that introduction, Jack. I think hey. I completely fucked up that intro. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's done a great. I need to start um, like scripting these before I go in, because I feel like that's no, it's all good. I like it. It's, it's off raw. The it's off the cuff. It's natural. <laughs> uncut <laughs> yep how are you doing today jack i'm pretty good i'm pretty good all right i'm excited Thanks. to be for the movie we're talking about we're kicking off february with an equally romantic month deserves an equally romantic film so with that that in mind what film are we gonna be talking about today streets of fire i'll be coming for her and i'll be coming for you too sure you will and i'll be waiting You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before, where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun, where the beautiful stay and see the show. It's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody and the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. So was this your first experience with Walter Hill, or generally what's your approach, I mean, what do you know about him as a filmmaker? I'm curious. Honestly, little to none. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with him as a filmmaker. Um, so yeah, this was my first time watching this film, and uh, and for the record, this movie I don't think is the best thing to start out with. I mean, not in that it's not a great film, and personally, it's in my top twenty personally. So, so obviously I love it, but I don't think it's the most representative of his oeuvre. I mean, whatever the fancy term for I mean, body of work is, I'm not, I'm give I've given up trying to pronounce that correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been meaning to see the Warriors as well, but. Um, yeah, it's just as goofy, but it's a lot gnarlier with in terms of its violence. Okay, yeah, I could see that. If um, that movie is Evil Dead 2, this is its Army of Darkness. 
All right. That, I, that straddles the line, but still maintains like a gritty like sense of violence. This just goes full camp. And honestly, for the I mean, for the best, and I like Army of Darkness or Evil Dead Two, even if having to choose between the two is like choosing your favorite. Or I mean, who's your favorite child? Yeah. How, how about you? Uh, what's your relationship with Walter Hill? Walter Hill is a filmmaker I discovered late high school. Like mostly, I just knew his name from the Alien movies that he produced them, and I think he has a writer's credit on the third one. One that would be the David Fincher one for the Uninitiated. I'm not. But anyway, he's mostly known as a producer of those films, but he, right now, to the film geeks, he is especially known as one of the best action filmmakers and screenwriters of all time. Like, the dude is lean, he's efficient, he gets in and gets out, and he's hard-hitting and bone-crunching the whole way through. Like, the two scripts I end up recommending to people who want to just study screenplay structure and form are his script for The Driver and Shane Black's The Last Boy Scout. What would be your uh, recommendation um, for someone getting into his body of work? Probably the driver of the Warriors, because the Warriors is style, oh, but the driver is just generally leaning, again, that lean efficiency and just hard hitting. This, this is more like a, up in the footnote, but it's granted a really good footnote. No, and it's definitely unmistakably him. Just It's a much lighter side of him. Like, even stuff like 48 Hours is still... Pretty fucking mean in spots. Like, Nick Nolte is a piece of shit towards Eddie Murphy to him. The race, the race stuff is a prominent thing throughout the whole movie. He treat, I mean, Nick Nolte treats his girlfriend like shit. And that the violence is when it happens. It's je- it is definite. It, it's one of the reasons I kind of love it more than Lethal Weapon, even though I do love Shane Black movies. Is that it's action and comedy working in service each other. The heart, I mean, the meaner the and nastier the action is, the funnier the comedy is. They they serve each other. It's a sort of symbiosis. Nice. That that I'm very intrigued by that um, analysis, and I would, you know, love to check it out. And by the way, the driver, which that's probably going to be the hardest film to find. I mean, I think the DVD is still available on Amazon. I got it for five bucks a couple years ago. Ago, I'd keep an eye out for that. That, but it's not streaming anywhere. Anywhere, and it's otherwise pretty much practically doesn't exist, which is a shame. But oh well. I don't. I doubt it's gonna get like a big Blu-ray release, unless, for instance, Fox is owned by Disney. Which, ugh, I wish we could go one episode without mentioning that, but here we are. Yep, it is what it is, I guess. I mean, unless someone like you know Lorber gets their hands on. I know Twilight Time had a, a Blu-ray out of it, like a limited run though, which is maybe why they shut down last year. Hint, hint. Point is, physical media is a very fickle thing. It's it's dying, I think. Um, I don't think it's dying. It's just increasingly a collector's thing. It's yeah, more of a job. Yeah. Like, you know those, like, those, um, toy, those action figures that are basically, like, miniature sculptures, like McFarlane or Hot Toy. Like, those things that are, like, almost life-size and, like, cost hundreds of dollars. I yes. think it's going to get to a point where it's, like, those. Okay. I could see that. Um, everything's just becoming digital now. Which, there are benefits and there are hazards to that, as there is with everything. Yeah, it is more convenient, but you lose the, like the charm of something tangible. I guess you lose the you 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 lose the feeling of of owning what you actually buy, which is ultimately the reason I still do it. Because you know what, there's a chance this might get taken off of digital, so I'm gonna have this just in case. It's a yeah. good, the best possible failsafe. I agree. I mean, that's the same way, um, or the same reason. Excuse me, why I still you know buy DVDs and vinyl um 
by the way, the driver, if anyone's listening to this, if you want to know, like, basically the modus operandi for Drive, literally the opening 10 minutes of that movie and, and this are almost identical. And that's not an accident. I say that as a, it's a loving homage. Interesting. That's uh, an interesting, you know, idea that he did that. Uh, he did an homage to his own work. I, feel like usually I know. It's... Walter Hill didn't do, didn't do Drive. That was Nicholas Winding Refn, obviously. But still, it's not. It's fun to see stuff wearing classic, wearing classic toys getting drive or the driver. Drive, drive is a reinterpretation of the driver. I should have specified that because of how how similar those titles are. That's that's okay. I understand what you're saying now. I forgot how confusing that was going to sound. Ah, words mean things. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot to. Yep. Discuss within this film. Uh, and just general, you like to start? Let's start with what it's about, which I think I'll sum it up. It's about, or it is, in Walter Hill's own words, and I'm reading the director's statement he put on the back of the soundtrack here, a rock and roll fable. Streets of Fire is, but, and I quote, by design, comic book in orientation, mock epic in structure, movie heroic in acting style, operatic in visual style, and comp- and cowboy cliche in dialogue. In short, a rock and roll fable where the leader of the pack steals the queen of the hot and soldier boy comes home to earn to do something about it. Since I much prefer films that make people remember things that they've forgotten to the that try to discover something new in Streets of Fire, I tried to make what I earn would have thought was a perfect movie when I was in my teens. I put it all earn put in all the things that I would have thought were great then, earn which I still have great affection for. Custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets questions of honor on streets of fire most of the good times i had were working with the songs in this album the rest of it is just him talking about like what was featured in it. wait i i fucking knew it T- stevie nicks was involved with it it's because i remember one of the st- tracks sounds suspiciously like a stevie nicks track and tom tom petty too which and by the way you mentioned uh rumble when sh- shows up when we were watching it uh link ray is mentioned on this even if uh half the names mentioned here don't actually show up on the album yeah, I could see that, uh, you know, definitely as an inspiration. Um, that's an excellent director's statement. Uh, really encapsulates I think I that to you like a day ago, but I'm not sure if you could read it because uh, it's still the al- the original pressing of the album that I have is uh, still Rats in the Plastic. Ah, uh, yeah. So it's, kind of hard. It's, it's like taking a picture of like a win- window. It's reflective, so it's going to be hard to make out. Oh, well. Yeah, that, that, that's all good. But um, no, that was that was an excellent statement. He uh, he really the covered theory. everything in a. The I mean, dude that, in my opinion, is encapsulation of the film. Yeah. Per, oh, I agree, and I think that sums up what I like about him. It's brief, it's succinct, but it's no less poetic for it. Efficient. Again, yeah. If, if it, it I mean, like efficiency shouldn't mean shouldn't mean you should compromise who who you are as an artist. It's in the embodiment of the three F's, in my opinion. Form follows function. In that, yeah. what it's something what you talk about. And what is the best way to tell it? I respect Sorry, that. Ahead. No, I, I'm just saying that's a uh, concept that you bring up a lot, and I, uh, you know, it's one that's really uh, grown on me, I guess. Uh, yeah, something that I now very much like take into consideration. Everything, consider every tool in the box, even right box, even if you don't end up using it. Anyway, if you couldn't gather from the back of that album, it's about I mean, it's about an alternate like 1950s. I always summed it up as 80s right, pop meets 50s cool. In a sense, it's about a rock star who gets kidnapped by a biker gang, and and her, in the words of classic film noir, old flame has to ride into town and rescue her with literally at one point a fucking Winchester. It is very much an amalgamation of a lot of 
it's like Western, and I get that this, why this didn't do well at the time. It is, like Buckaroo Banzai, it is a very specific collection of niche. And if none of those work for you, it's probably going to bounce off you during the second it starts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could certainly see that. But uh, it was a, um, you know, kind of like, uh, just like an, an odd, good combination of the, the two aesthetics. That that it's, it's so quixotic, very quixotic and, eclect and eclectic, but it just gels together. It does in a very, it, in a way that it wouldn't seem like it would gel together, but it, it just works. And believe me, I have problem. I have a couple problems with this movie. One major one that I think Chandler is definitely going to agree with because I, I kept making jokes about it while we were watching it for the show. Which, by the way, thanks for letting or having me over so we could do this. I'm, yeah, no I'm problem. So happy man. I could show it to your roommates. That was a that was a fun night. <laughs> it was. It was. They enjoyed it. Yep. Um. Yeah. Anytime. But uh. Yeah. Go ahead. I think I know what you're going to say. The big, the big complaint. Drum roll, please. Is this is basically a like Indiana Jones? It's about I mean, it's a reinvention of this Paul character, this man with no name, this icon, this archetype, and the guy they got to play him was Michael Pere, who does not have an entirely terrible filmography. I mean, he's in hundreds of movies. Most of them are like direct-to-video action schlock. He's in the version Suicides, which is odd. Like, yep, and also that this and. Yeah, I mean, he's also in Bone Tomahawk, which is another great slice of a uh, Western cinematic pulp from uh, S. Craig Zahler. Zahler? I don't remember how to say his last name. He's also in the John Carpenter remake of Village of the Damned. Yeah, I'm looking at his letterbox right now. Um, yeah, it is not interesting. Not recognize. Not a lot of good things either. And a lot of Uwe Boll movies, which is kind of dispiriting. The Lincoln Imagine Lawyer. Oh, that was, yeah, that's a good one. Imagine working with guys like Walter Hill as Craig Z or John Carpenter and who else? And Sophia Coppola only to go with like the guy who's single-handedly responsible for the awful reputation of video game movies. Yeah. Man, I mean, I kept joking that he was like a block of wood in this, but I'm not sure how much of that is his fault and how much of that is the tone because everyone else in this is fantastic. They're going for, like, you know, you get exactly their deal or their deal and they fill up half their, or in pretty much their entire backstory and deep and deal just by showing up without saying a line of dialogue. Yeah, and even though they are somewhat two dimensional, it just works, and you understand. Yeah, it's um, again, the movie is a comic book. It's a, it is very comic booky in style. Which how the fuck did Walter Hill never do a Batman movie? Yeah, I I could have seen that. Is honestly, this is the kind of style. Like whenever I talk about like superhero movies lacking like produ real production, just. Or in design, and I'm not saying that to discredit people, but it is kind of annoying to see a spring of them set in the same like back corner of LA or, or Atlanta, or Atlanta instead of like the, or like the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, which made like these skyrim metropolises with like Greek statues and neon lighting, and like they really went above and beyond with it. And it's just you don't see that in a lot of movies in a lot of big budget movies these days. I think the closest that it got was I don't know Aquaman. I guess so. Aquaman just seemed. To CG to be, um, which I get. It's probably going to be know, the only way you do that today. Production design, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I argue it's I, more the design itself more than where you actually do it, as long as it's on screen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I didn't, I did enjoy the produ production design in this film, though. I thought it. Um, even if, uh, I mean, 
I mean, a lot of the action is clearly on like the same like couple or a couple square miles of the Universal backlot. Yeah, like which, an underpass, but it, which, it, I mean, works. it works. It has a sense of energy to it. Like, good God, how? I mean, when they call the streets of fire, they aren't kidding. Shit gets blown up pretty quickly. It's yeah. kind of I mean, like even when I mean, like the biker guys are kidnapping Ellen Ain, that'd be a uh, Diane Lane's character in the opening. Thing they're still like they're like bursting in, they're like jumping on the stage, they're like throwing trash cans through windows and shit. Very comic booky. It's com- it's complete fucking chaos, and it's kind of awesome. And I like that when that when the main character he deliberately tries not to kill anyone. He's like, no, no, let's just do or like or pump out their motorcycles and just get right and just snatch her all in one. Sw- where it fell swoop. That'll be a lot nicer in the end. Probably. And I think that is an interesting when compared to the rest of Walter Hill's filmography, considering how rough and tumble a lot of it is. It's like, he is, and I don't, and trust me, I'm not saying anything new or revelatory about this, fascinated by a certain breed of masculine violence, I guess. And like, specifically the way violent men think and act and feel. Yeah, I wouldn't. Like I wouldn't cowboys. consider it toxic masculinity, but I could see how someone might consider it toxic masculinity. I'd, love to see so- I'd honestly love to see someone or in a really smart writer reinterpret it through that lens. Like I think the closest we got in is, again, Drive, or Baby Driver, I guess. Which, funny enough, Walter Hill actually has a cameo in as the judge near the end. Oh, nice. Yeah, like a deconstruction of this film or the this yeah. film's ideology. Yep. Which, this is more of an homage, like a deconstruction. It's not. It's not got a lot on its mind. Like it doesn't try to say anything social about the fifties, and hell, arguably doesn't even. It's like Sin City in that it, it is so many different time periods all at one, right at once that it pretty much defies categorization. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and speaking of which, there's a. I, I rented this from the library a couple years ago. Where ago was a movie he did with uh, Mickey Rourke called Johnny Handsome, which I know it's like 1989, so it's like right before the Sin City comics came out, but. Man, that feels like a patient zero for Sin City, just in in like color. What was it called? Johnny Handsome. It's an okay movie. It's not one of his better ones, but it's it's fun for what it is. And also, Mickey Rourke is really good in it. And funny enough, right, since he ended up playing Marv, feels fitting. In fact, that's what I think got me the gears turning in my head. Like, I wonder how much Frank Miller likes this movie. Not Streets of Fire, Johnny Handsome. That one in particular strikes me as his jam. I would love to have a conversation with him, um, just like see what kind of guy he is. Miller or Hill? Um, Miller. I loved. I love to do both, mainly because both of which are fascinating and great to read in interviews. Both of them. Well, Frank yeah, Miller. Is, yeah. Now, there was a period in the 2002 comic book fans know this. I this where his work took a nosedive, and even he's not proud of it. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why, because well, that's his his story. I mean, I'll leave it to him to tell it. And so, yeah, yeah, I get, he is kind of the Frank Miller of filmmaking, but without you know, a lot, some of them are troublesome stuff that makes talking about him difficult. Yeah, and I would need to see more of uh, Hill's work too, like fully. And I don't think he's a lot more myself. In some ways, I know people criticize Frank Miller for for not being the most uh, most uh, modern in terms of his views of like women or in certain or sociopolitical factors, but. I mean, if you go back and read stuff like *The Dark Knight Rises*, it is very anti-Reagan, and in like critical of the '80s, yeah. Republican um, status quo. We say, and even in *The Driver*, and again, Nick Nolte, you're not supposed to like him, like at all. He is a, basically the poster boy for the corrupt shitbag cop. 
and not corrupt in the sense that he takes bribes, but more, but more, this is the dirty Harry with his mask off. Like, this is, like, he's just as rough, but you are not supposed to idolize him, or, hell, even sympathize him on, or any level. Interesting, interesting analysis. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say my favorite part of this film is definitely Willem Dafoe. Um, oh just my character God. in general. He demands the screen. Like, God, he, I mean, there's eating the scenery and then just completely laying waste to everything with a wave of mutilation. And yeah, I know I'm like the least original guy for mentioning this, but him in this, he's the, he's the fucking Joker in this. Yeah, totally. And not just the Joker, like the '80s Joker, like the way Brian Boland, where, where he's like all angles and like thin, bony, and like with that big leather trench coat, wearing a trench coat, and the widow's wearing peak, and that smile, like the dude, like he leaves off the front page, and and like with like the skinny chin, and and or just like thin, or thin, and like or like poses in weird ways. It's that is the way Brian Boland drew him on the page, and it's fascinating to see that on screen, even in something that isn't technically based on a comic book. Yeah, but like the way this film is so comic booky, it it just works so well as like as him being the Joker, which is you know a character we all know and love. Um, yeah, I've seen a bunch of the fan arts of like you know people coloring. Joker. It. Mostly, yeah, yeah. And it, it mostly ends up lo- with him looking like the Arkham Joker, which fine, whatever. I know, I get that's popular, but honestly, him, I if we were to cast him, I we should have cast him young. Like my ideal version was they would have gotten him for the. I mean, for the Tim Burton one, even if, don't get me wrong, I love Jack Nicholson. He's still my favorite Joker, but man, wouldn't that, especially when you see him in something like a lot, a much more uh, straightened down the, I don't want to say down the middle in terms of quality, but more, but just as stylized, but not as out there, like fantastical, is to live and die in LA, where he is laconic, he's thin, he is so like creepy in that, and which I kind of hate that that's the stereotype of him because he has a lot of range as an actor, and I think he can display a sense of, of, I don't want to say intimacy, but sweetness and and vulnerability that, and even stuff like Finding Nemo, where, where, where you just go like, oh, I feel bad. I think. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I think, like, going back to the Joker for uh, one second, I think he wouldn't have been cast as, as the Joker because in uh, the Schumacher Batman area, era. Tim, because the Tim Burton one. Since yeah, Burton, because I think the Joker, like, the Joker was still more silly and fantastical um at and that even point. in that movie where he like fries people to death he's still like you know what i'm glad you're dead <laughs> yeah yeah he's still like kind of silly and goofy um yep it's the perfect balance in my opinion if you're gonna put the joker on screen is that have him be dark but still like really funny which basically a live action and uh, god i know i hate i really really hate bring parroting like the or in, or in stuff, or in like certain subsections of like comic book fandom and Reddit's and stuff like that, but a live action version of the Mark Hamill one from the or in for the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Like while I think some things can't be transferred mediums, but yeah, I, I I can stand behind that. And what's more impressive, Willem Dafoe wearing Defo- Defoe's appearance in this, or those leather so, like trash bag overall? Trash bag <laughs> it looks like a trash bag. It does, and the weird. And it's probably vinyl, though, considering how that's cheaper. And well, the trick that I remember George Miller learned this on the set of the original Mad Max was, right, well, one, it's Australia, so it's hot as hell down there anyway. So, right, like whatever you can to right, keep them from sweating to death. But also vinyl, like if you put it on film, it looks in the right way. It looks like leather. 
So yeah. it could, yeah. I mean, it honestly could be latex too. It's probably it's probably latex now. I think about it, considering how dark it and shining it is. But he still owns it. Yep. He owns the outfit, and no matter how like goofy it might look. And speaking of people who totally own their outfits in this, good God, Diane Lane in this. She is not on screen for a lot, but when she is, she is total dynamite. Like, I mean, every time she is, she's not even that well-developed of a character, but good God, with the outfit, like, the attitude in that, yeah, I could be rescued, but I can still handle myself pretty well. Like, she's a badass. Yeah, yeah, I mean, every character kind of owns the screen, and, um, and she I mean, for totally the most part, killed, but she does. She, except for Michael Bray, obviously, and even then, to give him some credit, he does try him some lots, and even towards the end, or where he's looking back at him and basically going back on it on his wayward um, man with no name journey. I mean, I'm like he almost he almost sells have sad here. Yeah. And the weird yeah. thing is, I think you're, he does. I mean, Walter Hill ran into this, ran a similar problem with the Warriors with Michael Beck, who funny enough is going to lead you me to the next point. Point since uh, Z- you since we already covered Xanadu. I was that uh, I think he ran a lot better in that because again that movie is so. What, I mean, like clear its vision and focus and everything, everything just locks into place that Michael Be- Beck does what he can. He was in Xanadu? Yeah, he was. And that, uh... I mean, I don't, I don't don't even remember, remember because he didn't Yeah, he was the, he that was much. The, he, was the he was the painter, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't blame him. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, anyway, what was the astute observation you made, or I think it was halfway during the movie? Hmm... Oh, it, this, this film is basically Xanadu for guys. But much better directed. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, I can, I can live with that. I can. It's got I mean, music, that, it's got, can, you know, motorcycles, guns, it's action, got, it's got explosions. Neon, so much neon. Possibly yeah. the best looking neon has ever looked on film. That isn't, that, that isn't Nicholas Winding Revan, oddly enough. And it's, it's got that, like, fantastical um atmosphere reminiscent of 80s film i guess um in just and a way that you know maybe th- maybe think Xanadu. and speaking of 80s film and music man is this an interesting to consider within the context of the mt because the only big song you'd know off of the soundtrack album is i can is dan hartman's i can dream about you which even then wasn't produced for this movie and i think what ren was i can't remember if it was a studio mandate or not i'd have to look it up it did feel very uh, music video e or concert film. Point, yeah, there's literally one um, point where it, de- where it devolves into a music video. Too. But I did enjoy and appreciate the fact that they shot it on um, digital on video, um, and you could tell. And so yeah, like, there's like a, a cue that this. So is... the... And it, it reminds me there's a there's a pullout shot in Ridley Scott's The Martian where they go ran from the TV ran V of a press conference to the actual room and and the transfer from one to the other is so seamless that you don't really notice until you like go back and like pay attention it kind of reminds me of that yeah i could i could see i could see that um but no, i i appreciate subtle um references or subtle cues like that um, well, MTV employing the, visual. Again, the music I mean, the aesthetic is very or in 50s but the music is very 80s in the best way possible and that's not entirely on accident, considering that Jim Steinman wrote the two big musical numbers that book bookend the film that uh, Diane Lane's character sings, or at least Brandon Lip sings too. That I mean, they were done by another band called uh, Fire Inc. Actually, which man, 
that album was the soundtrack to my, I mean, like, the sec, the latter half of my high school years. Every time I see those opening, I just, like, pump my fist. I'm like, yes, yes, this is what it feels like to be young, when young and hopeful. I see, yeah, a lot, a lot of fist pumping um, like, occurred. That, but not in, like, a bro douchebaggy way, but more like a power pop, I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, like ba- pop ballad. Like, I mean, like, if the first one's, like, a Pat Benatar type thing, the end one is, like, total Bonnie Tyler. Okay, okay. And man, Don, again, one of the reasons I think I love Dunlane's performance in this just fascinates me is she sells the hell out of the whole MTV diva thing while still being likable and commanding and, again, badass. Yeah. She does get punched in the face, knocked out. But um, by, by the main guy, which is the... <laughs> there's the thing. They kind of set it up earlier, but he does it like that in the, or in the finished film. It came out of nowhere, it seems it, like. The like, basic romance, like, a lot of these things, is is ripped straight from Casablanca. Where, yeah. like, the, where, like, the I have to get called, where the bitter or hard-boiled hero has to get called back to save a girl, or his old girlfriend thing. That is 100% the Casablanca playbook. And I'll say this, it's a better riff on that than a lot of other movies that try to do it. I mean, yeah, we've just, we've just seen it so much. Yeah. And, uh, There's a... Fuck, there's yeah, a there's a, a comic book movie with uh, Pamela Anderson in it, and it, that literally did try to do the exact same riff, but it, not even close to as well as no. this. It's yeah, called Hardwire, and yeah, if you you ever heard of it, that's that's for a good reason. It's yikes. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, pretty, doesn't sound pretty that, bad. Yeah. Are you speaking of Borat? No, surprisingly. <laughs> oh my god. Is Borat just gonna like creep into everything we talk for at least I like the next few so. months? <laughs> you know what? There are worse Whatever, things. Whatever. Yeah, Pam- Pamela Anderson's career is, I think, forever it's, is now marked by her appearance in Borat. And I just think it's so awesome. Did we miss Baywatch? <laughs> no. Like, I think it's funny that she's more known for being in Borat now than in Baywatch. I was going to say, because I mean, Baywatch wasn't really all that well regarded. Like, if you knew what that show was, like, why it was popular at the time, it wasn't for the storyline or for ironic quality. Just, or in good God, the slow motion montages should just tell you everything you need to know about the quote-unquote plot in these yeah and speaking of uh nostalgic pop throwbacks i just remember when the beach boys appeared in one episode and this is the era when like brian wilson was still trying to get his mental health together and michael love was in full control of the band and look the less said about that era the better and uh, it shows in that episode because good god the song they perform is one of their worst and if you want more check out the todd in the shadows video about their album summer in paradise anyways and the unique way that the baby boomer music and craze crashed and burned in the early 90s it's a fascinating bit of music history yeah that sounds pretty interesting i don't i don't know much about uh the beach boys history they're um, in i'm not even sure if you'd like their music but the way they interviewed in music like the way it sounded is really fascinating you know, especially i think you you've heard pet sounds right yeah, no, I, I do love Pet Sounds. Well, I don't necessarily like a lot of the Beach Boys. The music, Pet Sounds, I think but it's fantastic. The way they like play with stereo, or in stereo and ways sounds like reverber, 
right, is really interesting, even if it is in very simplistic forms. Yeah, I have more appreciation for them than um, I actually like them, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. Speaking of stuff that was kind of dorky and looks like it's from the 50s-60s, Rick Moranis, who, funny enough, was in this the same month Ghostbusters came out. I think the same weekend, too. Yeah, and I, I told you, Jack, that you look kind of like him. Yeah. By the way, there's like a very small list of, pe- or of celebrities people have told me I look like. And that list includes Tom Holland, the man who plays Spider-Man right now for the MCU movies, Christian Slater, which is probably my favorite of the list, <laughs> iDubbbz, and Rick Moranis. Oh, yeah, and Buddy Holly. That's about it. Yeah, so listeners, just just imagine a combination of all of those guys, and that's what oh, Jack looks like. God, what imagine imagine what that would look like if you if you throw it like the like the teleportation machine from like flight, and it came out like is this like like retching hybrid like, please kill me. Yeah, I don't I don't have too many more specific notes. Mine are mine get a very uh, very broad. Way, I guess I found it funny that uh, the the in the club that they find Will and Defoe's character when they're restoring rescuing Diane Lane. And Lane is, it, I remarked that it feels like it was inventing a subculture that didn't exist. Like, it, the, I mean, goth rockabilly is what I called it. Like, if that movie was made, like, even two years later, you know damn well they would have been blasting, like, How Soon Is Now, or, like, or The Cure, or something like that. Or something like that Joy Division, be, yeah. Yeah, maybe not, just New Order at that point, considering how... Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I did like that scene, though, and I thought that, that was a great scene in the production did, design. Like, build, it did build its own, like, unique world and uh, vibe that, you know, yep. I've never... And style, even. Um, that and good guys, all, the, all of the movies that are in the moments that are just, like, the most or into, like over-the-top and earnest, they are, or, like, again, like that final moment of Michael Perret and, and Diane Lane making out in the rain under a or a bridge, and it's like that special kind of movie rain where it's so heavy, heavy that anyone with sense would be going and finding whatever shelter they could. Or, but they yeah. just, but the main characters just don't care, which, like, uh, that's the best. It's the best. Yeah, I we all kind of started laughing at it just because it was so, what? it was so and I Hollywood. Think we were laughing at it. I think we were just laughing with it. Yeah. At this point, like, because again, and by the way, this is an conversation I've been kind of dying to make a while. If Amy re- remade this, you know damn well Amy Madigan's play- character would be played by Alison Pill, and, and having her look like how she did in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah. They're the same More person. Time. Put the put the pictures next to each, o- or each other and tell me I'm wrong. Anyway, let me just get rid of this tinfoil hat here. <laughs> All right. And, and I think the big thing I love about this movie is, again, it wears its heart on its sleeve. We're gonna leave and just it's open, it's happy, and it's entirely aware of what it is. But yeah. it doesn't like me feel the need to joke at you about about it. It takes it all like, completely straight, and honestly, it makes the goofy stuff even goofier and the more and the cooler parts even cooler. Yeah, it's very saturated, but like not in a visual way. I mean, it is in a visual way. I, I, I mean, I'd yes, in a visual way, also, but saturated in general. Again, considering how much those colors pop. Man, this might be the best looking neon has ever been on film. Yeah, the reflections of the neon, like uh, on the wet cement, on, like the wet asphalt, very very nice. Pavement. And like in the op- in the opening scene, I think it's even the opening shot, which like God, it 
that's the cool that's the coolest thing that only like big budget studio movies can do is like when they wet down the streets so it looks like it's raining ugh it always looks the coolest yeah yeah yep. but just just very poppy in general and in another aspect one, and that i like the the variety on the soundtrack too or do like some of them are very tracks are very loud and big and bombastic like the ones that close the movie some of them are very rockabilly and fun and fun and speaking of things are very rockabilly and fun how have i not gotten to the bill paxton cameo in this look when he's clyde the bartender yeah he had a there, there were a few oh, yeah. um Why he lines the and jokes because honestly he's got way more charisma than michael Pareda. And, and this and he knows exactly what tone this movie is going he's basically just like rockabilly jeff spicoli from fast times like that, hey bud, let's party kind of vibe. Where like always like that goofy ass smile, but like genuine, but like not like doing in a wink wink nudge nudge way, but like he's totally in for this movie's vibe. Yeah, yeah. I but I think the lead in this film adds a little bit of like so bad it's good quality. Eh, you could argue that. I don't know. Here's the thing is that there's a difference between Arch and like just bad acting, like Here's the thing is like even with Diane Lane Willem Dafoe and even Rick Moranis, who as much of a weasel as he is in this, there's like actual like inflection, like emotion to it. Like it takes a very specific kind of actor to pull that off, and I don't think Perret could. Okay, I'm okay. Sure. I mean, I, 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 I get what I, you're saying. I pretty yeah. hate that I heard this discussion of one of my favorite move, movies and it just shitting on the lead actor. But yeah. It's the one like bit or in genuine problem with the movie I have. Otherwise, this again, this movie just makes me happy in all the right ways. Like it's on the or the in case of a bad day pile. Nice. Like nice. that I always refer back to just like because I know I'm gonna or be smiling by the time it's over. I think his performance adds to the charm of the film. Yeah, I could argue. I mean, there's moments where it does work. I mean, like again, that bit at the at the end, and he, hell, he even got, or he kind of pulls off a couple line delivery. Man, Walter Hill, by the way, Walter Hill, don't expect a lot of dialogue out of his movies. Like, the guy, he is mostly at, or in all action when it comes to it, but in, or in the most auteur way possible. But when he does do dialogue, it rips and crackles. Like, it what does here, it's that old-fashioned, like, movie back in the characters had in the 40s, which is just the best, and I miss that. The way it just, like... Very, like, hyper-realistic. Like, it's not real realistic but man is it fun to read on the page yeah i mean not that it is realistic but that it's like so far from reality that, that it's it just meant to be reality. on screen yeah yeah i get comic i mean it's very comic booky but in a very specific kind of, like i it makes sense that for the longest time walter hill was going to do dick tracy which is one of those comic book characters like before like the big wave a lot of superheroes like the phantom and the spirit or in spirit, and even Doc Savage, which, funny enough, Buck inspired Buckaroo Banzai, another similarly anti-reality cult classic from that year. Although, personally, as someone who loves both films, I like Streets of Fire more, and I feel like this is going to be more your jam than that is, because if you think this is nerdy, you ain't seen nothing yet until you see Buckaroo Banzai, where there's, like, reference, where it's, like, Jeff Goldblum in a cowboy hat and aliens that are all on and Orson Welles' War of the Worlds incident. Mm. Interesting. It's, as in, it's a movie that I can't believe got made. I mean, considering just how very, very nerdy it is and like its specific niches, but I'm so happy it did. 
Nice. I, I respect what films if, like that. It feels like what if Andy Kaufman made, like, Thor Ragnarok Guardian Galaxy? Or, or, like, one of those, like, cringe comics where that where that, may, where that call attention to the fact that it's a very poor joke that they're doing and, like, And funny enough, the guy who made, uh, and speaking of cult classics from the 80s, the guy who made Buckaroo Banzai would end up working with the one and only John Carpenter on, on Big Trouble in Little China. Nice, nice. I, I can see similarities in the um, goofiness. Yep. WD Director is a fantastic writer, though. Check out his stuff when you can. He also did yeah. a Stephen King movie called, wrote a Stephen King movie called Needful Things, which, um... <laughs> Oh my god, I can't believe it. We were talking about this off the air earlier, earlier, but I showed you like a Jimmy Neutron meme of him being the worst crank, crank, and then I showed it to another friend who said, you know damn well he would be one of those Rick and, you ha you're not smart enough to understand Rick and Morty types. And then I thought, and now I'm thinking back to the episode where they have Alfred Molino play the devil, and it's basically just the riff, the riff on Needful Things. They literally call him Mr. Needful. Wow, I did not catch that. <laughs> I do love Rick and Morty, though. I appreciate I, how dense I, I it is. I, I actually binged the the newest season over the over the course of my last winter break. Oh, nice! It's nice. amazing how consistent quality quality wise they can get out of that show. Yeah, yeah it's the new Simpsons. Yeah, closer to Futurama, not just because of the sci-fi stuff, but the way the characters like change over time without really changing. If that makes any sense, like there's. They're still recognizable, but there is like a definitive, right? Like here's what he was like in season one, and here's what he was like in the new right now. Okay, yeah. I I was just saying like in reference to like a popular, popular like yeah, yeah the, that the that popular sense. adult That's animation right. series. That's right. Anyway, back to Streets of Fire. I also I back to the variety on the soundtrack, which man, again, tangents within tangents and then tangents here. Or it's also got the like the MTV stuff, and even or like again the rockabilly stuff with with the Blasters tracks, who actually make a cameo in that rockabilly like goth bar scene that I was talking about. And if uh, you're not familiar with them, listeners, if you've seen From Dusk Till Dawn, the the Dark Knight song that they used to, to open that ran that film, that that's their song. If if memory serves correct, that's also their biggest hit. They also show up on the Jackass 3D soundtrack. Which, those quite a variety. Fun, which those movies are fun, but one of the things I forgot is how great the soundtracks are because it's all like punk, punk, and all and all sorts of weird odds and ends. Yeah, I feel um, like those films have been replaced by YouTube. Yeah, I mean, yeah, more or less. Although I don't, I mean, I argue no, no one did it as well as they did. Yeah, wherever. Yeah, certainly. Um, are you looking forward to the fourth one? I mean, not particularly. I mean, I kind of am, but also I'm wondering. Too old to where the point, to where the joke is still funny and not just sad. It's like when watching pro wrestlers getting brought out of retirement to do this. I'm like, it, where you're just like, like hoping that they don't die from doing this. Like, a reboot within a reboot. I don't think it's a reboot though, because they're getting back pretty much any of the guys who are still alive. It's just an R sequel. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I don't know. I never, never was into the Jackass films. Yeah. Another interesting note is, right, something that happens quite a lot, I think we brought this up in the head, is that 
whenever music appears in a film when it isn't on the soundtrack, which more often than not is contract issues, like or like how stuff gets licensed out, rented out, and who's making money off of it, and how and why. Or like there's a cover of Link Ray's Rumble that shows up, and sadly the Ry Cooter score is not on here, which is a shame because it actually is fantastic. Yeah, I, I do. I do love that song, Rumble, though. Um, yep, it's it's fantastic. And funny enough, a full decade before it would show up in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I guess so. It, it fits perfectly um, yep. in a scene that it's used, though, even though it is a cover. Um, and and, like, you can see the differences. Honestly, I can't believe we got haven't gotten to this yet, but those opening music, they set the tone so well. And also, how does Walter Hill not made a concert film? Because the way he shoots the concert stuff in this, it's energetic. It gets your fist popping. Like, it gets you involved... Right, all that it feels big and theatrical in all the ways it should. You know, and he shoots it in a way that's still interesting in the way he uses color and light, right, light and low angle, right, low angles to show the size and scale. Ugh, it's just the best. Also, that dress that they have Diane Lane wearing in the opening thing, and we're like, it looks like something out of a Patrick Nagel painting. Yeah, I mean the the costumes overall, uh, pretty bold. I think some of them are Armani because we're gonna, we saw the name pop up in the credits. I, was, I think I think it was, was it Adeline or Rachel that put, pointed that out to me. I, I think uh, yeah, it might have been. And they're, they're fashion people, so they they know much more than yep. we do. Fashion by David Bowie cues up. <laughs> bom, bom, bam, bam. That's still a total bop. And speaking of total bops. I think when the only time that the song is act, when one of the songs is actually like physically performed in the movie is the scene where they have to like hop onto that bus with like that doo wop group that they're basically the Temptations, or in yeah, or like, like the very early days where they're still doing stuff like My Girl, like. And honestly, the version in the film that they use the the song is called uh, "Countdown to Love." It's a really nice version of that track. Rag, I think it's acapella. Well, it kind of has to be considering how they're doing it on set. Yeah, but the soundtrack version is also really lovely, considering how they work the synth pop into there. Okay, it sounds cool. much like an kind of like an eighty Stevie Wonder track, like one of the good ones. Yeah, and I think that, that, that that's another um, example of like eighties meets the fifties uh, yeah. aesthetics, which makes sense considering how right, how much right, in the eighties and fifties were culturally right, like both of which are very materialistic decades, which again. I am not I mean, the first person to say this, nor will I be the last. Yeah, and I think they're certainly like, you know, one of the more monumental decades of the 20th century. And we just In got finished like, having our own nostalgia cycle. I think the name for it is like the 30 year, or year cycle, where like every decade braces. We're just getting onto it with the 90s now, and we kind of got a little bit of a head start with it a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Anyway, I already get. I think the only Rikuder track is one of the ones that's featured in the bars scene, which it's a fun song. Or song, and again, this soundtrack has a surprising amount of variety. Like, it's not all just synth pop. It's got a little bit of funk. It's got a little bit of soul. Soul. It's also got a little bit of rockabilly. Even like a bit of a country twang to it. Yeah, and it's I mean, very like, eclectic and well and well chosen. Like, it's not just one of those cynical. It's not something like Flashdance, which, ran at the time, which at the time, ran time was still like frowned upon, and like yeah, it was popular, and the, ran the way the relationship it had with MTV and music videos was unprecedented, relatively speaking, of course. 
right? And kind of sparked like a whole wave of stuff that would continue even till now. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would can, uh, well, I don't know, I, I don't know if I would consider this film a musical in the traditional sense, but it, it was very either. But I do think focused on the music in the same way that Xanadu, Xanadu was. The parts that are straight up musicals are way or are well, one much better choreographed and staged than that is. Like this actually like has a great sense of blocking and front or how people look in the frame and how space or in space and movement and all the stuff that make or makes great musical numbers on film or in film. But also, it's just generally like if music is still woven into it, it's more. That's the kind of musical I like is something like this or Baby Dri- or in Driver where it just kind of informs the back around and just like everything is cut to it and creates this all al- this alternate reality randy it's really fascinating yeah baby driver would be a good example of that um it's probably i don't know musicals musicals just... yeah, yeah i'm very very picky when it comes to musicals like if i just if i really can't get a more of the soundtrack or the tone i'm just gonna bounce off of it not even that i don't like it it's just it's not for me yeah same and i i don't mean to like just diss on them um, God no! God no! They take a lot of work to do. Yeah, well, I don't think yeah. either of us is trying to just not... disrespect. It's just like not everything appeals to everyone, and again, that is perfectly fine. Yeah, like, I appreciate I mean, them more than I actually like them. I'd say the same. And besides, imagine how boring the world would be if we all liked the same thing. Like yeah. we did have those occasional disagreements, like differences in taste, or in taste, and like an eclectic little thing. Yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. though, this is probably my favorite movie. It's either this or Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian De Palma film, which I really want to show you one of these days, but I'm not sure we're going to agree with that or just bounce off of it entirely. Because it is a very similar breed of melodramatic camp. Imagine, like, it's basically Rocky Horror Picture Show, Patient Zero, and I'd argue the better film of the two. Okay, interesting, interesting. I'm writing it down. It's also got Paul Williams in it, who did half the songs in it. He also wrote a lot of Three Dog Nights big songs. He had the Rainbow Connection, a lot of songs from the Muppet movie. He voiced the Penguin on Batman the Animated Series. He, and funny enough, he's also in Baby Driver. He's the Butcher, the dude who sells him all the guns in, right in the middle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. He's, yeah, I mean, like, really genuinely interesting and talented. I mean, and he, he is fantastic in this. Like, he is such a rotten little bastard in this. Or like the worst at or in like or in aspects of like that kind of Phil Spector music executive, like record producer. Yeah, just very like suit and tie kind of. Um, yeah, or, or, or like let's see how much right like taking the money out of our client's pocket into our pocket or in the pockets to uh, borrow the parlance of McConaughey's character in the, the Wall Street. Yes, nice reference. Which uh, feels kind of reference or in fitting, considering uh, the shenanigans that have been going on in Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Eh, depending on how unfortunately you get it, it's kind of funny. It's kind of... yeah, I, I, yeah, I just anyway. You know. Back into the fun stuff, like the, that isn't so troubling with real world implications. What would you give this movie, like? Or in considering how if we actually care about scores, because for me, what or in, or in movies like this can or in constantly kind of go either way and scores just go out the window, which is how yeah. much fun I have. No, I I I would say the same to a degree. Um, I mean, I would consider. I would well. I mean, th- again, this was the, my first time seeing this film, and so, um, 
I would, I would give it a six, um, but I'm sure I would have enjoyed it more when it came out. Yeah, and fun, and again, this was Maybe not a big. I was younger too. Out, came out, and Walter Hill was basically banking on this. I mean, right? Well, less him and more like Larry Gross and Joel Silver. I mean, Silver were hoping this would be like an Indiana Jones, because again, it's drawn from that same strain of pulp. And funny enough, we're going to bring Big Troll and Little China back into the conversation. That was also sold as we're in, sold and uh, projected the same way. And oddly enough, they're the only two movies that I think kind of already got the clip. Because the thing that all those Star Wars and Nina Jones ripoffs forgot was, don't rip off the thing that's popular now. Rip off the thing you love and reinterpret it. And that's how you work and make it resonate with people. And that is fully on display in Big Trouble in Little China, and especially this. Yeah, yeah, just like recycling the past. Yeah. I don't know, what, well, what would you give instead of 10? Recycling, just like recontextualizing it. And like making the movie that you wanted to see at the time, but just couldn't with it. Yeah. Which, is, which yeah. I'd argue is the same thing with uh, Mandy, which I'm like taking a lot of stuff from the past, but remixing it with all the technology we have at our disposal and just make, creating something completely different and far out. What's it? Which, um, speaking of Mandy, uh, there's... Shit, how have we got, gotten to this scene yet? There was a bit that, uh... I think you, you said the the sledgehammer fight between uh, Willem Dafoe and Michael Perret. Right, you said it reminded you of the chainsaw fight in Mandy? Yeah, it did, it did. It's like a duel... How big, and by the way... You know, it's like an odd weapon. Like, we just, like... Something looks so, like, conventional that you're used to seeing his weapons, but not in way. Like, not two of them use, being used against each other, like a sword fight. Yeah, yeah. It was it was entertaining. It's funny how and the, it's funny how much of a western this feels like, even in such like a metro, a metro a booming metropolitan setting. I mean, like again, the fact that he goes after a dude with a Winchester rifle, the fact that it, I mean, it feels so so small and yet so big at the same time, and like I mean, the kind of occasionally steampunk influences. Yeah, a bit. I mean, like every, I mean, but also. You know, there are times where I wish I was a fly on the wall in certain films, right? With certain in films, but right, like when things happened. But but this is not one of those times because, trust me, I've used a sledgehammer. Those things are fucking terrifying. Like just the idea of like the like the actual like metal part of it like flying off and like hitting someone just like terrifies me. Yeah, I think it just adds to like the the. Comic uh, I mean, book, it, look, it comic looks cool. It's oh yeah, it definitely adds to that. Yeah, because again, it's a big, big thing. You might this is one of those things where totally you have to go big or go. And yeah, and yeah. I, I, which I think they do completely. Um, it's a movie that not, you, I wouldn't say like it's completely self-aware, but to a degree. But not not winkingly self-aware, like self-con. It's a self-aware yeah, without self-conscious. being self-conscious. If that makes any time. sense. Or, yeah, or, or yeah, insecure. The thing I again, I think I'm not sure if I touched on this before, but the thing I hate about that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like Joss Whedon, aren't we all the smartest motherfuckers in the room? in room aspect of writing these days is that it feels incredibly insecure. Like this is the only way you can get an audience on this thing, which sadly has proven to be true over the last few years. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. With with a few exceptions, Aquaman, funny enough, being one of them, because totally. That movie is goofy as hell, but it, but it is also 
very straightforwardly goofy. Very, like, yeah, we ha yeah we have a dude riding a seahorse. So what? <laughs> You're either along with the ride or not. Like coast with the waves, ocean puns. Yeah. <laughs> what would you give this out of ten? I give it a solid nine. I I love this movie with all my heart. <laughs> nice. That that's that's awesome. Anyway, thank you for listening, everyone. I think this is going to be. Yeah, well, depending on whether or not and I end up cutting a sizable chunk of it down in the editing room, who knows? Probably not. Yeah, but uh, go watch the film if you have not already seen it. Yeah, uh, and unlike The Driver and a couple other Walt Disney movies, fine, it's on, and you can rent it on Amazon and iTunes. The soundtrack is everywhere, and even if you don't watch the film, go listen to that soundtrack. It, it is wall-to-wall -wall bangers and bops. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As as the cool and in crowds say, <laughs> how do you do, fellow kids? Very much a casual viewing film. Um, yep. Kind of a party oh, movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This would be a, God. This would be a great party movie. <laughs> Just like throw it on the background, like, "Hey guys, we're in Diane Lane singing rock to tires and like exploding entire street levels. It's amazing." <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it, and uh, we enjoy doing this. That, right, of course. We uh, we intend to continue as long as we can. Man, thank you for making it all worthwhile. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are just at Warp Celluloid. You can find in past episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Dorks, wherever finer podcasts are heard. If you want to follow Erno Chandler and I on Letterboxd, just search our names respectively, Jack Rourke and Chandler Williams. Anything else you want to plug? Or I think we can wrap this up for today. I think we can wrap it up for today. Alrighty then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay groovy, and remember, tonight is what it means to be young. You can't see it, but I'm pumping my fit or in fist while listening to this song at the end. It's a great note to end on. <laughs> hey, note to end on. Music puns. Hey. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care.